This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 3rd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The president can't just turn the economy back on after the dust is settled from the coronavirus outbreak. It will largely be up to the private sector. And for the purposes of constitutional government, it will be up to states, that is, governors and state lawmakers. Cato's Walter Olson discusses why that's a good thing. Uh, the states and sometimes cities are the ones that have so-called police power against epidemics. And uh, at the founding of the Republic during the framework of the Constitution and ever since, it has been the states uh, that took the lead when there was an epidemic. So what does that mean practically for uh, how this gets dealt with, uh, with regard to the restrictions that we see in place, uh, stay-at-home orders, do-not-leave-your-house orders, uh, restaurant closings, that sort of thing. From the earliest days of the American Republic and through the framing of the Constitution, it was cities and states that responded to yellow fever or smallpox or whatever the epidemic was. And if you look at how it's played out in the courts, the Judiciary has given more deference to the police power, as it's called, more deference to the states on time of epidemic than in almost any other circumstance. Very seldom do you find that the courts will step in to restrain the government while the epidemic is still going on. Doesn't mean they wouldn't do so afterward, but while it's still in progress, the government gets to do amazing things that are restrict liberties we absolutely take for granted at all the times. So uh, as this winds down, uh, hopefully sooner than later, what what, do you, what are your expectations with regard to restrictions that uh, have been put in place? How many of those, I guess, those powers will endure? Well, in the shorter term, it's clear from experience with epidemics that Restrictions are not usually removed all at once. They are removed in stages as conditions get better and as things that are pretty safe, even if not 100% safe, can be allowed again. And unfortunately, over the longer term, uh, government tends to retain power that it is flexed during emergencies. And libertarians especially know this from the past. We all know about the uh, states of emergency declared in World War II and the Korean War that went on for decades afterward. And although the courts sometimes uh, will see reality in this and will uh, either deny the emergency powers, this was what the Supreme Court did in the famous steel seizure case, saying that President Truman could not just seize the nation's steel mills, even though the Korean War was going on. So occasionally they will recognize that an emergency either isn't so grave as to uh, empower the government in a certain way or that it's over. Nonetheless, the government tends to hold on to some of those powers. Now, when you've got a constitutional right that's clearly laid out uh, in the Bill of Rights, for example, uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of worship are right there in the First Amendment, and they are both currently uh, bending like willows uh, under the orders to not convene in church, not convene public assemblies. Uh, once the emergency is over, I'm pretty confident that the courts would say uh, Mayor de Blasio, who has threatened to shut certain uh, churches down, quote, permanently, unquote, 
uh, if they don't comply. Uh, the courts would probably tell Mary de Blasio, no, you, you could shut them down while it was raging. And now afterward, and we are assuming that there's an afterward, uh, you can't shut them down permanently because the First Amendment has to spring back to its full uh, extent. But government asserts so many other powers uh, on an emergency basis. There isn't always clear constitutional language to roll it back. There are many state constitutions that have uh, built in the freedom of movement in, in sort of an explicit way. Uh, I expect there to be some court challenges to the ways in which states have exercised, particularly governors, have exercised power to uh, clamp down on movement uh, in their states. Is there? Should we expect there to be uh, bad precedents that emerge out of those challenges? It's an interesting set of questions. Let me throw in something that uh, I haven't looked this up myself, so I'm giving it secondhand, but uh, it said that during and after the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, in which governments did most of the same things that they're doing now, that there was no successful challenge to anything the government was doing during the pandemic. And afterward, of course, times would change. Now, the right to travel, which is not explicit in the federal constitution, but it has been read in in uh, many contexts, is uh, more explicit in state constitutions. And like rights of assembly and worship, uh, it is also likely to bend uh, while the pandemic is raging. You have to also add in a couple of special factors, which is that the U.S. Constitution itself uh, bars states, not just their own constitutions, but it bars them from uh, restricting commerce with other states uh, out of a variety of motives. You know, lots of litigation about the Commerce Clause and, and the Dormant Commerce Clause and so forth. Um, most likely, that would bend somewhat during the course of the emergency. But again, because that's in the Constitution, uh, better chance of getting all or just about all of it back afterward. One of the misconceptions people have uh, with the long record of a, an imperial American presidency is that the president could just give an order to end the shutdowns and restart business. And they're often surprised to learn, no, in our constitutional system, uh, Although the states have been diminished somewhat in their powers, uh, presidents cannot simply give orders to states. Even Congress can't give orders to states. Uh, it has to work uh, in different and more indirect ways. And so that means that the, uh, the answer uh, is not going to be dictated probably by Washington, D.C. And I think a lot of us are heaving a sigh of relief about that because the early experience with the COVID-19 epidemic has been that the federal government has really fallen flat on its face in episode after episode. The CDC, the FDA, uh, the fiasco about testing, the uh, unpreparedness on uh, hospital equipment and ventilators. The states have been uh, admittedly with a lot of variation, but they have been leading the way. They have been explaining situation and I don't, when I say states, I mean many states led by governors of both parties, but not all the states, have been explaining the situation much more coherently to uh, those who are listening, been putting out uh, much more well-planned out responses as far as uh, getting agencies coordinated, identifying local resources like vacant buildings and hospitals, and all the rest of it. 
governments, as you note, uh, tend to keep some emergency powers that uh, emerge out of nothing uh, during emergencies, but we've seen a lot of regulation fall by the wayside. Is uh, Do you expect that to be temporary as well? This is one of the fascinating questions on which libertarians can really make a distinctive contribution, because along with all of the curtailments of liberty that government has uh, imposed during the emergency, there has also been what I call a bonfire of the regulations. Uh, all of a sudden, you realize that many of the controls on doctors and medical professionals practicing across state lines, we don't need them and we don't want them during an emergency this serious. Maybe there's a lesson there for afterward. Trucking regulations, uh, all sorts of leftover trucking regulations that prevent truckers from responding to the logistic needs of a system that is suddenly coming under so much strain. Maybe we don't need those afterwards. And on and on. You know, my, the one that seems to be most popular with my friends is uh, home delivery of liquor. They're not going to give that up if they possibly can. <laughs> but, but there's uh, big, big areas such as telemedicine, such as the provision of online education. Uh, sometimes this is a not so good makeshift. But in other cases, uh, in both of those areas, it will probably turn out uh, better in the sense of uh, bringing services to rural areas, bringing services to people who um, don't want to go into uh, a doctor's office for a verbal cons consultation and pick up some new bug while they're there. Lots of reasons these things should have happened earlier. Now the government has to reconsider uh, the rules it's had against them all along. It seems that uh, at least just from my armchair, that it it seems like the uh, regulations that are customer facing, that is the, the the public actually is able to see the direct benefit to themselves, seem they will be uh, less likely to survive this event. Well, I think you're right, and yet I worry, especially in education, where the government uh, holds so many of the controls and uh, can uh, order people back into classrooms, even if they found that in their own particular personal situation, some or all of their coursework was going better online. Um, the government could give a lot of orders in that. Now, in telemedicine, you're, I don't think we're ever going back because uh, you've got uh, vocal patients who often have a lot of choice about uh, which insurer, which medical practice. And uh, one of the things about telemedicine, by the way, is that it's another version of the question about practice across state lines, because if a nurse can help you over telemedicine uh, with a virtual checkup, that nurse doesn't have to be in your state in a lot of cases. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 